<clears throat> if you have your books with you and you are following along with us with your own copy of the Mystifying Patanjali, turn it to page 112. We are we ended with the 27th Sutra, which I enjoyed very much, and uh, one that I did not remember from my first reading of this book. One's wisdom in the final stage is sevenfold. The seeker, these are the seven aspects, seven limbs, as he called them, of wisdom. The seeker has no need to know anything anymore. The cause of all suffering having been understood suffering itself is gradually eliminated attaining samadhi this is the third one finally eliminates every cause of suffering fourth he attains complete discrimination requiring no further effort in that direction fifth sattva guna becomes predominant in the mind and sixth the three gunas fall away and the chitta becomes calm. Seventh, finally, only the self remains. So this is one way that Patanjali is trying to help us attune to that final wisdom. What's that final stage of where only the self remains? How is that going to be experienced in us? First, and I love this first one, we're just not going to feel any more that we need to know. We're not looking for wisdom anymore outside of ourselves. We're not looking for it intellectually. The seeker has no need to know anything more. You've got your Guru's teachings and there's nothing more to know. And that itself is a hard stage to achieve. <laughs> we're so curious, we're so interested, we're still so what else is out there? What, what else did somebody say on the same subject? We're restless for information, for knowledge. We're not at rest with what's already been given to us. And I love that part because if I'm not there yet, I don't know if I need to even read any further. <laughs> Let me get there. <laughs> Let me get to the point where I feel, ah, I don't need to know anything anymore. Because I, I have it. I have Kriya Yoga. I have the books that my Guru has given. I have the practice and techniques that he has already prescribed to me. Is there really something more that I need? Well, Patanjali seems to think we don't. And then, of course, goes on and on. And what was interesting, and since we've already gone through this, I'm not going to go through everyone. What was interesting is Samadhi is actually just the third stage. For us, samadhi tends to be that final stage, isn't it? But, of course, we understood the subtleties of samadhi, that there are various layers to samadhi, sabhikalpa, nirvikalpa, and the time that it takes for us to be fully established in that state. But it also tells us that that's not where the game ends, that the soul still has a few layers that it needs to work on. And then, it's after samadhi, which is again a very interesting thought for me, is that sattva guna becomes predominant. I would have assumed when sattva becomes predominant, then samadhi would come. But imagine that. I feel that very uh, comforting. <laughs> oh, okay, so I don't need to be fully sattvic. And I can still get there. Isn't that good? All right. And after sattva is predominant, all three gunas only then will fall away, including sattva. Which, but it does mean 
But we have to get to a point where everything about us exudes that vibration of sattva. And I want to kind of tune into that in the corresponding sutras. Moving on, the 28th sutra says, By the practice of the several limbs of yoga, impurities disappear and the light of pure wisdom and discrimination dawns. So another wonderful way to look at it is that what we're working on so much is not acquiring wisdom, it's just cleansing ourselves of the impurities that obscure wisdom. And then we go to what's perhaps the most powerful contribution of Patanjali to the entire science of yoga, where he gives us his Ashtanga yoga, his eight limbs, again, eight stages of awareness, of purity of consciousness, of evolution of our own being, that will help us understand where we are in the spectrum of our journey. The eight limbs of yoga are the first, yam, which is self-denial. The second, niyam, which is an observance. Niyam means rules. niyam ye hai. Third is asana or posture. Fourth, pranayam. Here we are, halfway through, that's where pranayam comes. Withdrawal or control of the energy. Fifth, pratyahar is the interiorization of the mind. Sixth, dharan is concentration. Seventh, dhyan is meditation. Eighth, samadhi is complete absorption. Now, in giving us these eight stages, Patanjali has really given us a wonderful way, both experientially and as a practice, to understand how do I get from where I am now to this all-elusive idea of samadhi. There's this hypnotic, you know, confused sense that we have that samadhi is this amazing state that somehow I have to get to. But I remember when I was in college and I was reading all these amazing things. You, you read the Vedas, you read the Vedant. At the end, kya milne wala hai? And you're just amazed. Ye hoega, wo hoega. This is what you'll experience. These are the different ways that, you know, the wisdom is going to come to you. And you're just in awe. And you can't wait. And you're just like, how do I get this? How do I get this stage? And nowhere is it clear enough. No way. I mean, everybody throws in meditation. People throw in, you know, the guru. People will throw in devotion. People will throw a lot of different things. And everybody that you read their commentaries on, you'll see their particular, you can say, natural bent. So Iskon's going to talk only about devotion. You know, they'll give you the Gita. They'll kind of not focus too much on where... Krishna says you have to practice these techniques, you have to, that's not so important because at the end Krishna is just saying this, think of me. So everything becomes about that devotion. Somebody who's a more austere yogi will pick out from the scriptures only that which he says, you see here, discipline is being emphasized. Somebody who's a lot into the guru-disciple relationship will clearly say, you see right here it says, without a guru nothing's possible, so that's all we need. So on and so forth. So you've got these um, you can say natural inclinations that people have. What I love about Patanjali to a certain degree is you don't see, you don't feel Patanjali here. 
You don't feel him kind of stressing on one side or the other. It's a very, very, I don't know what to say, impersonal uh, giving that he has done. And the Ashtanga, these eight stages, these eight limbs really, and it's important that he called them limbs rather than stages, for even though there is a process that, there is a sense that you start here and you end here, you know, you're not starting from Samadhi, <laughs> that part we got. But limbs also suggest that they're interconnected. That you could, in fact, be working on many of them simultaneously and that they're interdependent. In fact, the perfection of one requires the perfection of all, which is another beautiful thing. Because then you really can say, all right, today I can do this, tomorrow I can do that. You, can't, you don't say, boy, I'm still stuck on stage one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, I thought I could make it, but here I am. I'm still right here. Well, no, I could, I could try this. Today I'm unable to do, you know, I'm not able to do pratyahar, but I can do asan. I can keep my spine straight all the time. And, then, and that gives you a clarity of both an experience and a practice, which is lovely about this. That go, and these are the stages, irrespective of who you are, whether you're devotional, whether you are, you know, intellectual, whether you are practical, if you are seeking final union, one way or the other, these eight stages are going to participate in your experience. Whether you're from the Hindu faith, whether you're a Sufi saint, whether you're a Christian mystic, you will still experience these eight stages. And that's what, what's the beauty of it. It's very, very universal and it's entirely based on your experience. Not so much on, oh no, you need more devotion. Oh no, you need more of this. It's not about how others experienced Samadhi. In this particular case, it is how you will experience Samadhi. So let's start. And I'll, obviously we won't get to all eight in today's class, so we will want to focus on the first two, the Yamas and the Niyamas. And that's why I want to also focus on the Sattva Guna. Because that's what the Yamas and the Niyamas are. They are a means for us to achieve pure Sattva, true Sattva. From the, from the inner experience, not the food I eat alone or, you know, the environment that I have created, but the Sattva of consciousness. So let's see, the 30th Sutra talks about the Yamas. The Yamas consist of non-harmfulness or non-violence, non-deceit or truthfulness, non-covetousness, continence, which is Brahmacharya, or non-sensuality, and non-attachment. So we've got five. What are they? Non-violence, which is ahimsa, non-lying or truthfulness, which is satya, non-covetousness, which is asteya, non-attachment, which is aparigraha, and continence or brahmacharya, non-sensuality. Let's tune into these for a moment, we don't need to read in the book. Nonviolence. Now, we've all heard these things, and of course, if you are, have already studied on the path of Kriya Yoga, or really probably on any path of yoga, they would have got you through these points. And everybody would have talked about it, you know, oh, these are really, really important. But these are super important. If we look at Ashtanga Yoga from the perspective of stages, which 
For now, I'd like for us to do that. Forget their limbs. Forget that you could move forward without already working on these. I wouldn't be able to take a single step on the path of yoga. Because none of these five am I truly even consciously practicing at all times. And especially, and this is something on the path of the meditative path, we tend to kind of brush aside. We think, ah, oh, the pranayama and the pratyahar and our dharan and our samadhi and our dhyan, that's plenty. But if Patanjali has put it in this particular way, he's essentially saying, you won't even, <laughs> you won't even make it to asana <laughs> without yamas and the niyamas. You're not even going to be able to sit still with a straight spine without yamas and niyamas. That's how, that's how desperately we need to tune into the yamas and the niyamas. You're not going to be able to sit for meditation without it. Why? What will be created? What will happen if we don't practice these? Restlessness. You will forever fidget. You will forever move because your energy is not under your control. It's not sattvic, it's rajasic. Sattva is stillness. Rajas is movement and tamas is downward movement, which also often happens to us in meditation. Even though we think meditation where we're going the other direction, but oftentimes we go downward as well in our meditations. And so think about how important it is for us to be really tuning to yamas and the niyamas and to make it. Later on, Patanjali talks about them as the great vows, the great vows of the yamas and the niyamas, a pledge. A real vow, I will practice ahimsa, I will practice satya. And we have to look at them from that perspective. They are more important in our life than perhaps to a certain degree, even meditation is at this stage. I remember we were with this um, saint, Swami Datta Dhut, once and we asked him because he was a great yogi, he was meditating all the time and he had his one chief disciple who was a close friend of ours and she would meditate all the time but nobody else in their ashram meditated and we would ask him, you know, why aren't you, I mean, you practice Kriya Yoga, which is what he was doing and he's like, but you don't talk about it with your disciples, you're not sharing it, you're not even teaching them any of these techniques. And he said, oh, they can't meditate. <laughs> For them, they still need to purify themselves. I was like, wow, this guy is really into Ashtanga Yoga. <laughs> like, should I tell him that even I can't meditate? <laughs> oh, I haven't purified myself enough to even begin this journey. Now that's why I'm grateful that Patanjali has, is calling them Ashtang. I'm grateful he's calling them limbs, so I can at least fool myself into thinking I can get to Pranayama and I can get to Pratyahar and I can get to these stages and in truth we can, fortunately. But the perfection of one requires the perfection of all. And why are the Yamas and the Niyamas more important in our context is because our outward life is far more real to us than our inward life. 
we spend a much larger portion of our energy, of our time, of our intentions, of our hopes, of our dreams on the world than we do in our meditations. How much, if we want to divide your day into a percentage, how much of your day percentage-wise is where you are interiorized? Very, very little. Even in your, let's take your meditation, how much percentage of your meditation practice are you truly interiorized in? Well, you can't hear the sounds outside you and you're not being constantly excited by the, you know, the doorbell and say, oh, chalo, ho gaya. We are living a very external life and we're living that external life more so because we don't practice the yamas and the niyamas. By not practicing the yamas and the niyamas, we are making it much harder to have an internal life because the world is stronger. Desire my great enemy with its soldiers surrounding me is giving me lots of trouble. Lots and lots of trouble because that's much more powerful than me. And what are these five things? They're not big things. I mean, they're huge things, but they're not, oh, wow. <laughs> they're simple things. <laughs> they're things we've grown up with. They're things my mother told me when I was young, which I didn't pay any attention to at that time. Don't lie. <laughs> Don't hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah, and we think of it as platitudes. You know, don't lie, like, sure, <laughs> you're lying to me all the time, <laughs> you know. It's hard because the people telling you not to lie <laughs> themselves are unable to <laughs> stick to the truth. But you start to realize the harm it does to us spiritually if we're not able to do this. I think the, the inability to practice the yamas and the niyamas is the reason for birth and death and rebirth and death and rebirth and death over and over again. These 10 things that the yamas and the niyamas are is single-handedly responsible for the millions of incarnations we're still involved in. And that's, you know, suddenly I was just like, boy, I need to be focusing on this a lot more. I need to be really mindful. I cannot fool myself into thinking my hour and a half of meditation practice alone is going to get me there. Because, of course, that's not a very, very deep meditation. If it was, we would be in samadhi. Because it's really not that much. Get your spine straight, done. Get pranayam going, all right? I practice my energization exercises. I can do a few breathing exercises. I can, to a certain degree, interiorize my life force. Pratyahara is hard because it's the interiorization of the senses. It means that when you sit to meditate, nothing outside of you calls your attention. So we're kind of stuck there already, aren't we? And it's because of the inability to practice the yamas and the niyamas that the world calls our attention in the first place. So let's enter into this with a little bit more, I don't know, just like that, like Patanjali says, taking these great vows. Not Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to when, you know, my pranayam is happening and my pratyahara is happening and dhyan mein jab ghusenge. Let's start where we are, not where we would like to be. 
So we've got these simple things of non-violence, non-lying, non-greed or attachment, non-stealing, I like it, you know, or covetousness, but I like the word stealing better. And then non-sensuality, brahmacharya. We know what these mean. There is, there is no secret here. There's nothing like, oh, wow, I wish I had heard these words before. Okay, but we just have to tune into it a little bit more. Non-violence first. I think for us, the biggest element of non-violence is anger. Not necessarily an external anger, an inner anger. An inner irritability with people, with the world, with circumstances that don't go our way. This idea that I could force energetically, you know, negatively, my thought, my word, my energy into the world and it'll be all right. That I can put out a lot of negativity into the world and nothing will happen. I'll suffer no consequence for that. And that's such a sad state for us to even try to experience. Every thought, every movement of your consciousness leaves ripples of consequence in this universe. That must be experienced by us. I mean, that's how responsible we have to become. And that's a level of responsibility none of us have contemplated before. We are thoughts are our own, and like nobody can see them, nobody knows them. But that's what nonviolence is. None of us are going and beating people up, so we're good there. You know, we've gotten that covered. Uh, we've risen. There are people who love beating other people up. We see, we hear about it in the news, and we wonder, and we say, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> How in the world could it even come to you, let me go and physically hurt somebody? So we're, it's, a great, it's a great feeling that we should have to say, that's done. Yes, every now and then, maybe if the circumstance was brought to us, we might be angry enough that we might want to hurt somebody. It's possible. <laughs> we can't completely disregard that. But in the majority of places, in the majority of moments, we have enough self-control, and more importantly, we have enough of a refined consciousness that we won't go in that direction. However, we use our words and our thoughts you know, very much without assuming that this is exactly the same violence that is done physically. And in a certain way, perhaps even more harmful because we can use it more often. How often would you beat somebody up? Once in a lifetime, maybe. Once a year, if you really, if you really like it. But how often do you use your words? Negatively angrily to intend and this is what it is to intend to hurt with a clear intention to hurt somebody we like it somehow it's it's strange but we enjoy knowing <laughs> that what i'm about to say is going to hurt this person <laughs> because of course the only reason we do it because we feel hurt ourselves I and mean, we're not doing it we're not sadistic we feel hurt and we want to share our hurt. <laughs> and so we say, all right, tu vile. <laughs> yeah? How does this feel to you? 
And then, of course, some of us are both able and aware to say, all right, I won't do it with my words because I know it hurts. But we do it in our thoughts and we do it way more often in our thoughts than we would do it in our words. So the time we spend first physically hurting somebody, we're assuming that's hardly happening. Verbally hurting somebody, that's happening. Maybe once a day. In some cases, less. Mentally hurting people is happening very often. Very, 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 very often. And they are small things. Look how he said that. What's he wearing? <laughs> Why is he humming that tune and it's irritating me? And it's just that mental constant criticism, judgment that we send out. And that's very harmful to our consciousness. Extremely harmful. And then you sit to meditate and you can't. In the Bible it says, before you go to the temple, make up with the brother with whom you've had a disagreement. And there's a story of Michelangelo, do you know, the painter. While he was painting one of his great works of art, which is the Sistine Chapel. It's the roof, the dome, the ceiling of this beautiful chapel in the Vatican. And he says when he was painting, there was a moment he wasn't getting it right. And he wasn't getting it right. And he tried and he wasn't getting it right. And he said, suddenly this verse from the Bible came to him. Before you go to the temple, you know, if you've had a disagreement, go fix it with your brother. And he says he had a disagreement with or an argument with somebody today. And so he stops painting and he goes and first resolves that argument and then comes back and now he can paint again. Because of course he was painting God. It's Sistine Chapel is that most beautiful thing where God is reaching out with his finger to Adam. On a very side note, unrelated with Patanjali, look at the image of the Sistine Chapel and you will see that that entire image of God and the host of angels is actually the anatomical shape of the human brain. And where God's finger is coming out from is the spiritual eye. And it's so anatomically correct that you'll see the nervous system, you'll see the medulla, you'll see the hippocampus, you'll just see all aspects of the brain. Go check it out on Google. But that's how amazing a painter this man is. And that's what he was trying to represent. He was representing a divine quality in that moment. And he couldn't because he had an argument with somebody that very morning. We can't experience deep states of meditation because we're always arguing with somebody. <laughs> in our minds. We're always fighting, always at war. Somebody is always our enemy. And that's going on over and over again. Patanjali says, and this will come later, but when that quality of nonviolence is perfected, even the worst of people, criminals, wild animals, even in your presence, even they will become loving. Well, isn't that a power to have? <laughs> that you're so exuding of love that anybody who comes in your, in your aura also becomes just as loving as you are. 
is a story of Paramahansa Yogananda in the US. After giving a lecture somewhere, I don't know, he suddenly, you know, he was walking away, it's dark, it's at night, he's crossing an alley and a man comes to him and pulls a gun on him. Now this man was hired by somebody, he was an assassin. He was hired by somebody to kill Paramahansa Yogananda. Because Paramahansa Yogananda was going on talking about Christ in ways that perhaps people didn't appreciate in the West. But this man comes, he push him, pushes him against the wall, he's got a gun on him, but he's crying. Now he was in the lecture where Yogananda ji was, and he's crying and he's saying, what have you done to me? I cannot live like this anymore. And he's shaking and he drops the gun and he runs away. And that's the power of that perfected love. <laughs> now the Paramahansa Yogananda didn't come to him and say, I love you, <laughs> I'm going to do this for you. No, this man's just in the auditorium listening to a very normal lecture being given. But what he felt transformed him completely. Now this is the kind of power we want to hold. That's why desire my great enemy has more power over me, it's giving me lots of trouble and I'm not sure, oh Lord, what will be my fate. Because yes, I can meditate and in the castle of your peace I can feel safe. But what happens when I step out of your castle of peace after my meditations? I'm not safe anymore, I'm back in the world and I'm back fighting the same wars and I'm criticizing the same people and I'm upset about the same things. And that won't do. So that's what true non-violence is about. And that's that sattvic quality we have to bring in. And this takes, boy, it takes practice, it takes energy, it takes stopping every thought. There's a magnetism to these, to these negative thoughts and it's, there's pleasure in these negative thoughts and we enjoy them and we want to play with them. Imagine the amount of energy it takes. And that's why pranayam, control your life force, control your thoughts, control yourself. Pranayam be thy religion, not God. Pranayam be thy religion. Stop this. What are you doing? Non-violence. Then you've got non-lying. This is a fun one. This is our, one of our favorites. We love to distort truth. We don't lie like, I mean, again, how many of us are lying because, you know, we like to cheat people? <laughs> Fewer of us. Why, how many of our lying jabbardasti out of no reason, just wanting to lie to badha chada ke apne ko suna? More of us a little bit sometimes. How often do you exaggerate stories? Boy, very often we exaggerate stories. And our purpose of exaggeration is to make us look a little better than we are. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's more or less the truth. But here I'm going to add a das log Whatever it is. And then of course we've got our usual, um, especially you know nowadays it's, yeah I'll see you in five minutes or I'm already in the car when I'm actually not or whatever we say, you know. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'll just do it right now. No, we don't. We just think that, again, there's this idea that what we say, what we think, how we present ourselves is, doesn't really matter. In general, I'm a good person, so it doesn't really matter. And it's true, it doesn't matter if all you want to be is a good person. 
if you want to be a perfected yogi, <laughs> it matters a lot. It matters that we feel the need to distort reality, which means we're not comfortable with what is. We're not comfortable with the world as it is, so I feel a need to change when I present those details. I feel that my version is better. <laughs> the words coming out of my mouth sound way better than what was. And so I like that distortion. And because we like distortion, the universe appears distorted to us oftentimes. That's why we're not happy with the universe. We're not happy with circumstances. We'd like to distort them. We'd like to change them. And that's that inner desire to lie. I don't want to say what is, I'm going to change it. I'm going to say it differently. And when we lie and stop presenting reality as it is, and this is not about facts. It's not about, you know, you look horrible. I can't lie, I have to tell you the truth. <laughs> Boy, that dress just does not suit you at all. And that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. Swamiji always said, truth is always beneficial. And so you have to feel, how is this going to uplift and benefit as well? But I do not want to, for my sake, not for others, for my sake, I don't want to change anything because I trust the universe in explicitly the way it is expressing itself is just right I don't need to sugarcoat it I don't need to make it better but when we feel the need to do that the universe loses trust in us when it sees us lying again and again it starts to think I can't trust this guy you remember the story that we learned what was the story as a child the boy who cried wolf, <laughs> you know, everybody knows the story, the boy who cried wolf. And what? The wolf, ha ha ha, people came to, to, because he was taking care of the sheep. Every time he, you know, cried wolf, the entire village would come to you know, drive the wolf away to protect the sheep. And the boy was just having his fun. And then finally the wolf comes. And so what happens when we don't align ourselves with truth? What does it weaken? It weakens our word. And what do we use our words for? Our prayers. Promises. Affirmations. They have no power. <laughs> Your prayers have no power because you've been lying so much. Our prayers have no power, not yours. So, it's like, nobody's listening. Now you're crying, wolf, God, Bhagwan, please, ye kar de, Igbar, please, I'll do this, I'll do that. No one's listening. Because they've heard you lie too many times. Would you listen to your children? If they lie consistently? Mami, bas, mereko bas, das rupay de do, mujhe bohat important chi. Nahi, beta, I know. Main kitni baar tumhe das rupay de diye, and every time you go and buy cigarettes from it, or whatever it is. We've all done it. And so now, nobody wants to give us those 10 rupees and the universe isn't interested in giving you your prayers, isn't interested in empowering your affirmations, isn't interested in supporting you because you don't support it. The universe is sensitive. <laughs> you know, if you don't 
It's a relationship. We don't realize. We think we're so important and the universe is created for us. No. It's a relationship. And if you lie in relationships, they don't work. And so non-lying again becomes so important. And then what does Patanjali say? And this is, these are the good things. These are the things that would, should get us all excited about non-lying is when you live in absolute truth, then your word becomes binding to the universe. Whatever you say, the universe is forced to manifest because you are so in truth all the time. Now, that's another power I would like to have. Whatever you say, and that's how the great saints live, no? When they come and say, you're healed. The universe is forced to heal you of cancer or of anything. When Jesus and the great saints and Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar and Lahiri Mahasaya raised people from the dead, what did they have to do? All they had to say is, rise. And the person rose. Because even death is not binding on their word. Even the most final thing that we assume is the one thing that there is no escaping from. Even that is not binding on them. That's how powerful our words can be. And that's how weak our words we've made. Now, we've only done two and we're almost at the end. And we just see that it just takes these two things and how far from them we are. And then we start to just say, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to get to Samadhi. <laughs> These are the few little reality checks that, all right. When I started the path, I thought in six months I'll get Samadhi. <laughs> it's been 14 years. And I still haven't figured out how not to lie. <laughs> I still haven't quelled that inner impulse to want to distort truth. It's just there. Zarurat bhi nahi hai. At the cafe, every day, you know, we get excited about how much did we make today. It's one of those great moments at the end of the day. And if somebody asked me how much we make, I would still <laughs> round off on top just because it'll sound slightly better if I say 30 as opposed to 29 and a half. It's just there. Isn't it? I'm not thinking I'm trying to lie to this person. I'm just, there's just an impulse to say this much more, <laughs> this much better. Just because, wouldn't it sound better? 30 sounds so much better than 29,915. But why can't I say 29,915? Why can't I be so comfortable with what is? And why is there this inner impulse to say, And that's, that tells us, you see, these are the things that we have to pay attention to. That's why it's an experience. It's not a practice alone. It's an experience. But I have not yet worked fully enough on that inner impulse that wants to distort truth. That's what lying is. Sure, I've stopped bigger lies. You know, when I was a child, I lied a lot more, especially to my parents. You know, some of that stopped, but it's the everyday thing. It's the everyday tiny little thing. What are you doing? Oh, not much. Well, no, I'm doing something. I can say what I'm doing. 
why won't I say? Because what I'm saying isn't interesting enough. No, I'm just, I'm sitting and I'm reading a book or whatever it is. Why would I just use my words so casually rather than use them correctly, perfectly, exactly as it is? Now, these are just two, and I don't know if I'm going to go into the other ones, especially not now, but maybe even not in the next classes, because it'll take forever. But I just want us to feel what power lies in the yamas and the niyamas. Then, of course, there's brahmacharya, there's non-greed. Actually, we'll need to go through them, because they're so subtle, especially non-stealing and non-attachment. They're just very subtle things. And it'll be helpful for us, and it'll be a great thing for us to take the vows that Patanjali is saying. Take the vow of practicing the yamas and the niyamas. Because I don't think we'll make it otherwise. You know, I don't think we can bypass this as easily as we would like. Yes, meditate every day. You'll see as you meditate, as you work on interiorizing away, as it is the power of the world reduces. And when the power of the world reduces, you naturally don't feel the need to interact with the world from this level. But the yamas especially are particular because the yamas, yam means control. These are impulses that we have habituated ourselves that we are no longer even aware are taking place. You're not aware of your negative thoughts as often. You're not aware that this critical thought or this judgmental thought or this way that I'm seeing the world, you are not aware that it's affecting you negatively. You're not sensitive, sensitive enough that it hurts. Remember in the autobiography of a yogi, just the last class, it said, the astral beings who are so attuned to truth in the higher regions of Hiranyaloka, even a tiny infraction away from truth is painful to them. Means if they have a thought that's just a little bit away from that vibration of sattva, it hurts them. It doesn't hurt us. And because it doesn't hurt us, we think, huh? <laughs> then I can have more. <laughs> I can have more of these thoughts because it doesn't hurt me. To them, they have instant karma. Instantly, they are reminded that, uh, you're stepping away from pure spirit. We don't have that. We can. Because the more inward we become, the more truly meditative we become, your thoughts will hurt you. In fact, they have hurt, it, hurt us enough, and that's why we've refined ourselves to this point. But not quite enough yet. But we still can. And now we have to just get it right. We just have to get it right. Because it's important. I want samadhi. Boy, I desperately want to get there. I want freedom. I'm so done. I'm just so done, but I'm not done enough, I'm still, and the yamas and the niyamas will tell you when you're done, when you're truly done, when you're truly ready, you will know through the yamas and the niyamas, you won't need samadhi then, you see, you will know by the quality of the way you interact with the world, that's when you will know you're done, and uh, I think that would be a great tangible immediate way for us to attune ourselves to where we are and that's what all of patanjali's yoga sutras are uh, so the sutras have been about a tangible real sense of where we are 
no more lying, not to ourselves, not to others, no more confused states of, I think I have gotten far enough. This is where you are, bhai. <laughs> if you're still <laughs> fluffing up the numbers of your daily <laughs> income at the cafe, this is where you are. Oh, yeah. It's all right. Now, what do I do? Where do I go from here? So, that's what we have for today's class. Although, as our old uh, practice that we like to do, which I'm always, you know, I like to speak more. Narayani is always there to balance me out. And she says, all right, let's close our eyes for a moment. Let's settle into the spine. So let's do that even though we are at 8 o'clock. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Let's straighten that spine. Let's see if we can get any closer to our asan. Perfect posture. Still, open, motionless. And I just want you to feel the restlessness that is inside you. Feel the restlessness of your life force. Feel the restlessness of your mind. All of that is the yamas and niyamas. Now just think about the two that we pr we talked about, non-lying and non-violence. And take that inner vow. Lord, before you I stand here and now as your soldier, as your knight. And I vow to be ever mindful of my thoughts, my words, my intentions, that I break none of your laws, that I remain in perfect harmony with your truth and with your love. help me and strengthen me in this vow. Remind me always if I ever come close to breaking it. In just another moment Draw from the presence of your guides, your masters. Let's see what we can do in these coming days, how strong we can be. Um. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.